This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts. I don't think you're really co-hosts. I think the three of us are tri-hosts. The trifecta. <laughs> Stephanie Butnick, deputy. The father, the daughter, and whatever I am. And the, the holy, holy ghost. The holy <laughs> tablet senior writer, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom. And deputy editor of Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Butnick. Oh, hi. Today, we bring you an interview with Monty Friedman, author of the new book, Spies of No Country, Secret Lives at the Birth of Israel, which is about these Jewish uh, men from Arab countries who went behind enemy lines as Arabs during the War of Independence. It's unbelievable. And our Gentile of the Week, uh, coming from a similar vein, is comedian Pete Holmes, star of the HBO, the now sadly canceled HBO show, Crashing, but he has a new book out called Comedy Sex God, which is terrific. Or is it comedy? Sex. Sex. God. God. Yeah, well, there's some punctuation questions raised there. So I could use that as a teachable moment. Like, kids, what if we put commas in? Eats, shoots, and leaves? Mm. Comedy, sex, God? Um, Pete Holmes is as Gentile as Monty Friedman is Jewish. Jewish, He literally went to Gordon College, which is an evangelical college outside of Boston. I've known people have gone there. This guy's a serious goy. I mean, his his Christianity. It took us a while to find one, but we got a real goy. (laughs) In show business. Be like, oh my God, that one, that one. And that's part of that's part of his shtick is like he's a serious Christian, or or was anyway. More on that. But more on you, Stephanie Butnick. What's up? Oh, it's about time we talked about me. I have a very exciting weekend coming up. Sarah Cohen, my sister-in-law, Ben's sister, is getting married to David Silver Yay! this weekend. From 90210? Yes, yeah. the David Silver, the fictional David Silver. Um, and it's I'm so excited. I'm the maid of honor or like the matron of honor. You're the matron of honor. I'm a, I'm a matron. What does I'm, it feel I'm, like to be a matron I'm matronly of honor? AF. Um, I'm so excited. The it's dress be, is cut differently when right. you're a matron of honor. Yeah, yeah. very high, yeah, very high <laughs> neckline. <laughs> Um, bonnet. Yes, I wear a bonnet. Yes, yes. All, everything, all like that. But so I give a speech at the wedding. And I was saying to Ben, I was like, what a world in which you give a speech at the rehearsal dinner for your sister's wedding, but I give the speech at the wedding. Oh, yeah. It's 2019. 2019, bitches. Um, Smash I'm so excited. It's. I love David. I love Sarah. It's going to be so fun. All right, let's hear it. What? The speech. I don't want to give it away because this is airing before my speech. But you, plays. you are going to get tape, right? You're going to secret, secretly record the speech, right? I, well, I'm not going to record anything because I'm going to be giving a speech. Because you know that any any moment from your like, personal, personal life, life must be mine for, for, the show. for audio. The yeah. thing about being matron of honor is the dress is cut high enough that you can sneak a little Zoom H1N recorder into <laughs> into your, 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 di- your decolletage. <laughs> um, Liel, you can't top that for this weekend, can you? Uh, no, I can't, but I don't have a week. Uh, I have a month that I'm celebrating. So this is officially Israel month. Every month is you Israel month. Because you get to count the Omer this month? This is Israel month. Yeah. Uh, it begins with, oh, it began last Thursday with celebrations of Yom Hatzmaut, which is kind of a weird day for me. Uh, Israeli he, Independence he, here Day. Here in the Israeli Independence if you will. Day. Uh, kind of a weird day here in the Gola, you know, in exile. Uh, celebrating it kind of in person, uh, the, the holiday that is like the most sort of communal, rowdy celebration. You know, eating your grilled meat and shouting to yourself in your <laughs> living room doesn't quite feel the same. Just so another Thursday. The month will culminate. Can you rally your kids with you? Will Hudson and Lily eat meat and shout with you in your living room? They will not. They will not. Uh, what about but... like a, gr- a meat grogger? <laughs> I think a meat grogger should should definitely be a thing. The month will culminate. Uh, Listeners, could you invent a meat grogger, please? There's an engineering project for it. AP engineering. Absolutely. The month will culminate, of course, with uh, Stefania and myself grand marshalling in style in the Israel Day Parade, or Celebrate Israel Parade, which we're very excited about. It's weird. I tried to be the grand wizard, but they wouldn't let me. I think it would actually kind of be funny if you showed up, be like, oh, so I leave my I should be wearing white. <laughs> 
<laughs> after Before Labor, Labor Day. Day. <laughs> uh, but but the really big event uh, is happening uh, actually as we speak. It is happening right now, uh, this Tuesday. It is beginning. It is, of course, the Eurovision. Uh, which let me tell you, you, you Americans. Yeah, we don't get it at really all. We don't know what you're missing. No, we like, think we've got The Voice and American Idol's now back, but we ain't got You're thinking about it schnitzel. all wrong. No, but it's, it's not a singing competition. It's, it's warfare. Instead of like, you know, generals and like men in uniform and guns and stuff, you send your absolute weirdest freaks, right? Is the point to of Eurovision to record other. a good song? The like, point? aren't they actually, their original songs, each country enters one. The point of Eurovision is to shame other nations into submission. This is like if Andy <laughs> Cohen, like, ran international affairs of, like, the UN or something, this is what the Eurovision would, would look like. And how's Fantastic. Israel's entrance this year? Um, you won last year, right? That's it. So and that's why it's in Israel, right? A repeat. It is in oh, Tel Aviv. Is that how it works? Really? Yes, yeah. Absolutely. But, Country but, that wins. That's such a weird host. insertion of actual sports uh, tradition into something that's but that's obviously what makes absurd. it like the geopolitics of it so interesting. Like, are people not coming because it's Israel? Yes, some people are not coming because it's Israel, but Israel is responding exactly as you would imagine Israel would respond. So there are two kind of big we didn't want you anyway controversies uh, <laughs> nanny nanny poo poo <laughs> surrounding this. We'll show you an anti-Semitic cartoon. Now listen. So first of all, uh, on the one hand, the official state-sponsored uh, TV channel, which is run, of course, by all the people who run TV channels everywhere. Um, the Jews, Jews, <laughs> Jews uh, who hold a certain kind of very clear, uh, you know, uh, ideological bent. They produced a "Welcome to Israel" video for the tourists. I am not kidding. It's a music video, right? It starts something like, "We hope you enjoy your vacation. Don't think about the occupation." Uh, <laughs> no. And, and then, and then there's literal, literally a line that says, "Like uh, here in Israel, we are all needy. We are Jews, but we're not all greedy." It's like if there's Sturmer wrote like a seven minute like promotional video to Jews, it would look like this. It's incredible. Literally but at the point. But you do kind of love it, right? Like oh, it, it is really the I most mean, awful, only, awful thing in the world. Really? They're because like, only Jews would do that. We That's what's are so here great about it. in the Dead Sea, which won't be here in a couple of years because factories have destroyed. It's <laughs> a couple of guys. Like, what are you doing? Everyone is going insane it starts today uh there will be conspiracy theories <laughs> there will be memes there, there will be, be... massad falcons oh, love it right. when love the it. siren goes everyone will pull over at the this side of the road this will make miscongeniality look like, like a, a documentary it's like miscongeniality meets black hawk down like that's <laughs> uh, what this thing is love it what's uh, going on with you well i this will not top, top that. that this will not top that but i have a, ser- a, a serious jewish oh and ethical. madonna's coming i'm sorry of course. did i mention madonna's coming um this doesn't even come close to that, but it is a, a Jew ethical, a Jewethical dilemma, <laughs> which is that I um, was visiting some friends out of town and they were having over some acquaintances of mine, not as close friends, but acquaintances who are uh, Orthodox Jewish of the of a certain Brooklyn variety, right? Ultra Orthodox, Hasidic, Haredi. And they have um, a couple young children. Uh, and as you know, I have an eight month old who does not yet have all of his vaccine shots because they don't give them all. They don't start giving the MMR because he's weak until he's one. So eight <laughs> month olds don't have baby. measles vaccines. And I had this moment where I said to Sid, wait a second, we're about to enter an enclosed, you know, humid, breathy space, a small apartment with some people who frequently travel back and forth to Brooklyn and are ultra orthodox and have young children who could be 
carrying and Sid looked at me and our eyes went wide and we thought, what the fuck do we do? So here's the thing. Can you ask? Like, how right. do you deal with that? So do you ask them, uh, excuse me, we notice you have the black hat and the little ringlets on your hair and you put on the weird boxes in the morning. Um, do you immunize <laughs> your children? We might as well be saying, excuse me, Mr. Al-Sheikh Mustafa, yeah. you know, do you, with the, the little fez on, like, you know, are you terrorist? Excuse yeah. me, Mr. Black man. Are, I mean, it's like all of a sudden I'm a racial profiler, right? What do you do? So let me ask you something. What would you got? Uh, picture yourself with <laughs> this an, is an amazing Aaron Sorkin play with an I... unvaccinated eight month old. You 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 mean well, uh, but you genuinely have this fear in this day and age. What I do do? would get in my car and go home because I fear confrontation. <laughs> Can you play it off as I ask everyone this? So this is what's interesting, right? So, so one friend, I got a couple responses from friends as we were, you know, midrashing this at our house. One friend said. Look, I mean, people now ask me before my kids come to play, before right. they'll let their kids play with me, do you have a gun in the house? Right. And my friend is like, do I have a gun? No, I don't. And if I had a gun in the house, it'd be locked up. Like, what are you talking about? He said, but apparently there are people who now, and I've seen that on a daddy thread. You know, do you do you ask if people have guns in the house before your kids have a play date for the first time, with you? which I think is insane. Um, someone else said to me, Mark, if there's one person in the world who doesn't have to worry about being accused of anti-Semitism for asking this right. question, like you gave it the office. Nobody's going to be like, Mark, Mark's always profiling Jews. I mean, he literally is profiling. But literally, Jews. in this case, I am profiling Jews in The New York Times. So <laughs> Shalom, Moisha. Uh, two questions. A, what do you think of this week's Parsha? B, are you kids vaccinated? So, so what did you do? What'd I you do? ultimately I thought to myself, I mean, ultimately fear got the better of me. And and I thought to myself, if God forbid, these are non-vaccinators. And my eight-month-old comes away with a case of the measles. I will literally have to kill myself. Like I will never be able to forgive myself. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to ask. And so I emailed the fellow, and I said, I, I played it down very casually. I said, just out of curiosity, since I know a lot of people from your community uh, have take different sides in the vaccine debate, I'm curious where you where you come down. Playing it like, oh, I'm being a journalist, mm -hmm. but he's not stupid. Um, so he wrote back, he said, oh, we vaccinate. And he said very sweetly, it was something like, I, you know, I get why you're asking and, and we vaccinate. The kids are up to date on their shots. So I went, Phew. thank God. And was it awkward in person? No, no, it wasn't awkward in person. Um, I mean, look, that's the least of the stereotypes that black hatters have to deal with. So I, I think he was a grown up. Yeah, about. I thought they get really saying, you know, it's, it's, it's so heartbreaking. I, I can't tell you like how sad I find this whole story. I, I completely get where you're coming from. I probably would have done exactly the yeah. same thing. And at the same time to kind of see like yet another reason for people to pile on a community that receives so much pile on so much yeah. piling on and, and, and so little love. I mean, these are people who are literally attacked in the street like every week yeah. and, and virtually like no one reports that. Yeah. And they are they are the they are the shock troops for like ongoing living Judaism in that they actually study the texts and actually have you know children. <laughs> so shock I, troops is a, is, a, is, is maybe not maybe not the word words. I want. Um, how about that? Speak, Armies of God. Speaking of shock troops, uh, a little news of the Jews: white supremacists chanting six million more crashed a Holocaust Remembrance Day event in Arkansas. I will say this is somewhat reassuring because they are clearly not Holocaust deniers. <laughs> right. Who are like, oh, six million people didn't well, die. Except they probably are, right? So if you say, oh, so you acknowledge that six million died, like, well, no, you know, it didn't That's happen. That's just a number I thought we of. We want six million more. Zero died in the Holocaust because it was invented by, by Jewish bankers. Um, 
Howard Jacobson, tablet columnist and British novelist extraordinaire, once wrote a piece. It was, wasn't for, and it was an interview somewhere. It wasn't in tablet. It's hard to find on the internet in which he talked about Holocaust deniers as being, the, the, the irony of Holocaust deniers is they are the ones keeping Jewish knowledge alive. And he says they're condemned to this sort of extraordinary hell where they're sitting in their little warrens surrounded by the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Chofetz Chaim, the Rambam. They have like, all they do is study Judaism all day. Right. Like that's the price of being a crazy anti-Semite is you live with Jewish texts all the time. <laughs> <laughs> searching like like studying them for the gematria and you, he said you want to hate us go ahead go ahead like learn the languages bitch david duke the only person more obsessed with jews than we are exactly uh nope there's one other person mel gibson for oh, uh hello. i should point out um he is he has a there's a lot of mel gibson news this week first of all he's being signed up to play santa claus in some movie yes uh, which is nothing compared to the other movie the other movie just announced it was just announced that, that what is it called that uh shia labeouf who I just like for several reasons. Um, and Mel Gibson are going to be in a movie called not Rothschild, but Rothschild with that with no S. And that way, you know, it's not about the, the Jewish. Jewish banking family. That's the subject of vast anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Right. And but it's about some like rich it's, people in New it's York. It's basically a very wealthy banking family and Shia, the Rothschilds. And Shia plays like the ninth in line, like deadbeat kid, and he has to basically figure out a way to get to the fortune. And the and Mel Gibson is the patriarch of a very wealthy New York, New banking York, totally not family. Jewish, but New York banking greedy, family. Ugh. You know how you know they're not Jewish? You know what what the name they gave the character? I'm not making this Beckett. up. Beckett. No, Beckett. Well, is Shia, Shia, Shia is Beckett Rothschild. But what is Mel Gibson? Christopher White Law, White Law, White Rothschild Law. Rothschild. That's not even a name. It's white supremacy, <laughs> Jewish money. It's every it's, single ugh. bad idea thrown so, into. First one of all, movie. I don't think this movie. Plus, is I, get, I don't think this movie is going to get made. But second of all, it raised a lot of interesting questions. There's that great piece in in hey Alma that basically said, "Why, with all of the people who are being canceled for minor infractions over the past, you know, you said this in your yearbook 27 years ago, how is it that Mel Gibson, who routinely says misogynist?" homophobic, and horribly anti-Semitic things about the Jews causing Racist all the wars. Things. He says Ra- everything. How does he still get work? So our producer, Josh, had an interesting theory, which is that a lot of that initial stuff happened before, like, the era of cancel culture, right? So when he got pulled over, like, the sh- you know, when he was pulled over by a cop and, like, it was on TMZ, but it wasn't – if for some reason we were, like, a different society then and yeah. we were like – I don't, I don't know. I No, I don't – I think – I think that actually people don't really give a shit. Nobody cares about the Jews. I, I think and, that's and partly what? it. It's that nobody. The, I have to say, nobody cares about the Jews the because Jews don't care about because the Jews. Woody Allen. Uh, now look, if what his daughter said he did is true, it's horrible. It's truly horrible. But there is no clear evidence. I mean, he has one child who says he, my dad didn't do this. I mean, this is a sort of a controversy that will never be solved that has not been prosecuted. And there are people saying left and right will never work with Woody Allen again, right? And I don't know what I would do in that situation. But it's it's fuzzy because it's in the deep mist of history. It's thirty years ago. Right. Mel Gibson, like seven years ago, was on national TV insulting the Jews and nobody cares. Nobody cares about the Jews. It's, yeah. it's weird. He called Win- Winona Ryder, I guess, said he called her an oven dodger once and she had never heard the term. Like he's oven dodger. Yeah. Which is like, again, such a specific reference. Right. Like, has only a, the deepest anti-Semite knows that. Like, right. You're on like weird. Reddit like, so you know, there were ovens, like even though you're Holger <laughs> Snyder. But uh, the first movie he signed on to be like a bad Santa type character. And Seth Rogen had an amazing tweet that said, ho, ho, holocaust denier. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Seth Rogen, um, some guy I haven't heard of who's married to that amazing guest we had. Oh God, right. Lauren Miller yeah. Rogan's Lauren husband, Miller Rogan. Seth Rogen. He's doing really well. Um, I'm happy for him. I now just he's think, catching up to her. It's I good. just think that there's some weird way in which no, it just doesn't seem to stick to him, which is like everyone knows he's bad, but he still gets these movies. But it's not just to him. I mean, Someone comes out and says something horrific and anti-Semitic, and A, nobody cares, and B, you know that this is going to be like a whole, you know, cadre of Jews who are like, well, you know, he didn't really mean it that way. Well, you really I don't know. I don't, I don't see any Jews defending Mel, Mel Gibson. Also, Mel Gibson and his dad. We is run Hollywood. Why does this like, guy still have a job? Well, that's the thing. That's right. the we problem. Could, we could cancel yeah. him if we, if we, if the podcast community in yeah. in the Flatiron District controlled this stuff. He'd be done for. I think it's more about like executives and some bullshit, right? Like it's actually not about the wider Jewish community. And I disagree. I think that a lot of people are very, very quick to condemn anti-Semitism within our community. Could it be that it's that Mel- Woody Allen's movies don't make any money and Mel Gibson's do? Is that part of it? Is it just too much money to leave on the table because all we care about is money? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just think this is like a, a very bad look for Shia LaBeouf, who I believe is like Jewish. Okay, Shia LaBeouf, though, I have to and say once came... To, here's, mentally ill. here's my beef with Shia LaBeouf. He once came to New Haven to film. It was the the last Indiana Jones movie. And while he was in New Haven, he tweeted out something about, yeah, I'm in this, I'm in this stupid, rinky-dink, little, horrible town of New Haven. He insulted. Oh, no. He was like accepting our hospitality, eating in our ice cream shop, staying in our hotel, shooting a movie, and going on Twitter and insulting us, which is really a bitch slap in the face. Like, we're actually here. We actually read. Tw- I mean, I don't read Twitter. But <laughs> actually, there are people in this town who know what you're saying about them as you say it. You dipshit. I don't think I've um, ever seen Mark so angry. Wow. You insult New Haven. You don't cross the line, you man. Come to me. <laughs> Douche in the canoe. New Haven ice cream shop. <laughs> you come to my a pizza parlor. <laughs> a beats. It's with I a B. I think that he's just an asshole. And I think that any I just think this is like we're we're all tough on like female actresses who work who, you know, t- take roles in Woody Allen movies. Why can't we be tough on Shia LaBeouf for taking a freaking role in like an anti Semitic oh, caricature movie? We hereby cancel Shia cancel. LaBeouf and Mel Gibson. Cancelled. Kappa Kappa cancelled. I've been waiting on the night like tomorrow won't happen. Call it what you want, but I would answer it as habit. I could play the part of a hard-filled gentleman romantic. Start chilling up in a panic. Five-fold penicillin tensor if you ask it. I can shimmy everything except for where my past been. Passion was less than passive on the path in. Now it's all an action and Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are here with Machi Friedman. He's an award-winning journalist and the author of Pumpkin Flowers and the Aleppo Codex. His newest book, Spies of No Country, Secret Lives at the Birth of Israel, explores the little-known story of four Mizrahi Jews who went undercover as Arabs during the time of the country's founding. Welcome, Mati. Thanks for having me. Before we talk to you about this book, why don't you read us a bit from it? 
Sure. The years of my acquaintance with Isaac Shoshan, who's one of the four main characters in this book, turned out to be the years of the great Arab collapse and the destruction of Aleppo, the city of his birth and childhood in the Syrian civil war. We watched it happen from interview to interview. Throughout the Middle East, the Christians, Zoroastrians, Mandaeans, and Yazidis were going or gone, as well as Sunni Muslims who once lived among Shiites and Shiites who once lived among Sunnis and people who think or act differently and don't have a tribe that can protect them. The hatred of people who aren't like you, the idea that something will be solved if only such people can be made to disappear, this sometimes starts with Jews, but tends not to end there. One of my conversations with Isaac took place not in his kitchen, but at a mall in his neighborhood, where much of the population has roots in the Islamic world, like Isaac and like half of the Jews in Israel. The children of the Jewish quarters of Tunis and Algiers were here in Ray-Bans and running shoes. The Jews of Mosul in northern Iraq were also here, not in Islamic State ditches with their neighbors, the Yazidis, but drinking lattes in the air conditioning, eating kosher McNuggets as their kids howled in Hebrew on the trampolines. These were Israelis, but not the kibbutz pioneers of the old Zionist imagination, orphaned children of Europe. These were people from the Islamic world, in the Islamic world, their lives entwined with the fate of the Islamic world, like the lives of their grandparents' grandparents. This was Israel, but an Israel not visible in the way the country is usually described. At a chain cafe by the escalators sat the spy Isaac Shoshan, formerly Zaki Shasho of Aleppo, also known as Abdul Karim Muhammad Sidki of Beirut. When he recounted how he saw Israel born, the story had none of the usual characters and sounded unlike any I'd heard, but explained more about the present than any I'd heard. It was a Middle Eastern story. And when I left the mall, the streets themselves seemed different. And that's when I decided this was a story whose time had come. Is there anything more fun in this world than hanging out with old spies? No. No. And as I write in this book, if anyone ever <laughs> offers to introduce you to an old spy, and even if you don't know why you're going, just go. It won't be a waste of your time. How, how, did you, how, did you, how did you stumble upon this? I mean, you've always had a knack in your work for the sort of clandestine, your, your big first famous amazing book that everyone should also buy as soon as they buy this book was about the uh, rescue of the Aleppo Codex, which is an amazing story. Uh, how do you gravitate to this? So I was working on that book about the Aleppo Codex, which is kind of a nonfiction mystery about the most important copy of the Bible in Hebrew, and it's also a pretty dirty <laughs> story. And one of the main characters in that book is an old, retired Mossad agent. And I just hung out with him a lot as I was working on the, uh, the Aleppo Codex. And at some point, he mentioned that I should probably meet a friend of his, an even older retired Mossad <laughs> agent, this guy who lives in Batyam, which as you know, is a kind of sweaty suburb uh, south of Tel Aviv. And I said, okay. And I didn't know why I was going, but I, you know, I'm happy to meet an yeah. old spy Always anytime. say yes to old Always spies. say yes. So I went to, I slept from Jerusalem, which is where I live, down to Batyam. And I went to this very Soviet-style apartment block. And I went up this tiny kind of telephone booth-sized elevator up to the seventh floor. And this very small man with a mustache was waiting for me at the door. <laughs> he was almost 90 at the time. Today, he's 94. And that was Isaac Shoshan, Yitzhak Shoshan. And he told me this story about 1948 and about the founding of the state that I had never heard before. And it was so strange that it took me a few visits even to understand what he was talking about. And he was telling me this story about 
his adventures and the adventures of a few of his comrades who are part of this tiny intelligence unit called the Arab Section, which is one of the important seeds of the Mossad. And the story really changed the way I thought about the creation of the state. And I decided that it would be worth a few years of my time to try to figure out what that is and if it could be kind of put into book form in an interesting way. I want to be very careful with with the questions that we ask because I don't, there's so many amazing nuggets in this book and I want to give none of them away. So in the kind of most um, general way imaginable, T- tell us what it is that these men did. What What is the, the key story of this amazing book? These The four main characters in Spies of No Country are members of the Arab section, and they are kids. They're basically kids. They're barely out of their teens. Some of them are still in their teens. They wash up in British Mandate Palestine to join the Zionist movement before the founding of the state. And they come not from Eastern Europe or Western Europe, like most of the Jews in Palestine at the time, but they come from Arab cities. Uh, Isaac Shoshan comes from Aleppo. And one of my other characters comes from Damascus. A third comes from Yemen. So they're Jews from the Islamic world, from the Arab world. And they come to join the Zionist movement. And they're uh, marginal. They're not really able to assimilate into the Jewish society in Palestine at that time, which was so East European and socialist and so kind of wrapped up in the world of Europe and they couldn't quite fit in. And they are picked up at that time, just as they're failing to fit into this new society, they're picked up by recruiters for the Arab section who are looking precisely for that characteristic. They're looking for Arab kids who can pass using Arab identities on the other side of the line. So they end up in this little intelligence outfit, which is part of the Palmach, which is the elite military force of the Jewish military underground before the founding of the state. They're given some very rudimentary training. They have virtually no equipment. They're not paid salaries. And they're (laughs) sent off into this incredibly chaotic and dangerous moment to create a state for the Jewish people. So when you say, Mati, that these stories, or in particular this first spies story, uh, and then the work you did with all four of these ex-spies changed how you thought about the founding of the state, what do you mean? People are used to certain stories about Israel. So, you know, you're still reading about the Entebbe raid and uh, the Six-Day War. And it sometimes seems that the history of Israel in English basically stops at the Entebbe raid and then becomes this endless shouting match about the settlements. But there's no other history uh, worth writing about. But um, the country is incredibly interesting and complicated and unknown in many ways. In some ways, I think it's unknown to itself. And this book is kind of a creation myth. I mean, it's true. It's not a myth, but it's a creation story for the country in which there are no Ashkenazim. There are no European Jews in in the book. The main characters in this book are Jews who came from the Arab world and have a very different idea about what was going on in 1948. You know, there's so many. I, I'm so glad you brought up Antebi because there are so many things I absolutely loved about this book. But one of the things that really grabbed me is like when when you describe the trainings that they got and the missions that they were given. Like, that is the most Israeli thing. It's like, I'm going to give you very little. And then just basically, I want this almost impossible thing from you. Go on and figure how to do it. This is not like, okay, well, the planes will land in a perfect ballet. And on top of it all, you're not getting paid. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> You'll get exposure. Exactly. Exposure to death. It'll be good for your resume. Exposure to death by hanging. In... In those days, the, the whole thing was completely chaotic. So if you're imagining the mystique of the Mossad and this mythology around Israeli intelligence, which today, you know, <laughs> I assume is also largely bullshit, but certainly at the time it didn't exist. This was a completely seat of the pants operation. They're sent off, for example, to uh, to do intelligence missions and uh, they don't have a camera. The Arab section doesn't own a camera. So when they need to take <laughs> pictures, they have to borrow a, a Minox camera from this guy who they know. <laughs> and two of them go off to take pictures of Syrian um, uh, military emplacements along the border in early 48. And they're told, these two guys are told, if they don't come back 
okay? But the camera has to come back <laughs> because they borrowed it from <laughs> this guy. Loan. Who's going to be really angry if he doesn't get it back. They, they're sent off into, um, at the most chaotic moment of the independence war, it's, the, it's April 1948. So the state has not yet been founded. The British are about to leave. Things are really coming to a head. The Arab invasion is about to start. And uh, the Haganah, which is the precursor to the Israel Defense Forces, ends up capturing Haifa. The Arab population of Haifa collapses and begins to flee to Lebanon. And the guys running the Arab section understand that this is an opportunity. They're going to get their guys into the stream of refugees and they're going to flee to Lebanon as refugees. And that's how Israel eventually gets its first agents into the Arab world. So they meet their commander at a hotel in Haifa at the height of the fighting. And this commander gives them a pistol and some money and he says, good luck. <laughs> that, that was the plan. There was, no, there was no briefing. They didn't have a radio, so they had no way to communicate once they were in Lebanon. So they go off, they join the refugees, they go off to Lebanon, but they have no way of knowing what's going on back home. They have no idea if the state still exists because it's April 1948 in May. There's an invasion of five Arab armies. Uh, they have no information from home. All they have is Arabic newspapers telling them that the Arab armies have successfully eradicated the Jewish enclave. So the Egyptians <laughs> are almost in Tel Aviv and the Arab Liberation Army is approaching Haifa and you know the Jews are finished. And as far as they know, that's that's what's happening. So they're sent off with, with nothing. And the fact that any of them survive is quite miraculous of about a dozen or so agents active in the Arab section at the beginning of the 48 war. Half of them are caught and executed um, in part because they weren't very good. And maybe they didn't have well, the did best you, instructions. They didn't have any instructions. <laughs> or like a support system. Right. They had very little supports. All they had was incredible courage and desperation and creativity, which are the three things that were really driving the Jewish national movement at the time. And you can forget in 2019 what it was like. We know, of course, we know well, the you... story. The state of Israel is founded. And we know how it, how it goes. But in 1948, they didn't know. They knew, they knew nothing. And so how much are these guys fitting in, right? Like, because this idea that they're going undercover, but they are from Arab countries. How, how, how much do they have to really like... You know, like you don't get caught for using the wrong fork and like be found out as a European spy. Like how do you how do they navigate that? Right. So the training that they're given is a kind of rudimentary training in Islam because they're native Arabic speakers. They don't have to be taught Arabic, but they have to get the accent right because dialect is very important in Arabic. And you can tell if someone comes from one village or another village or a city or if, if he's rural, they're taught some basic Quran verses and they're taught how to carry out very simple rituals that would be familiar to, to Muslims. But um, it doesn't always work. So the first two spies from the Arab section who are caught are caught in Jaffa in December 1948 and they're spotted by an Arab militia and the Arab militiamen don't really know what to do with these guys because they're native Arabic speakers and they don't want to kill the wrong people. So they're suspicious. And what they do, and we know this because a phone conversation between them was tapped. They asked them to wash their face like a Muslim would wash his face before prayer. There's a ritual purification called wudu and a Muslim would know how to do it. And one of the spies knows and one of the spies doesn't. And that seems to be what blew their cover and their bodies are found 40 years later, buried in some dunes uh, near near Jaffa. So it's a very treacherous business. If you misconjugate a verb, you can be dead. Right. If you have a, an item of your clothing that's wrong, you're dead. And this happens to quite a but few at the of these same, guys. But at the same time, I mean, we, we're so accustomed again in 2019, or, or I think many of our listeners are, to think of like the... Arab-Israeli conflict, like these two sides are like so completely different. And yet here are people who in so many cases could seamlessly pass off as like, oh, of course, like the most famous example, of course, being Eli Cohen. Like here's a person who could, for all intents and purposes, be almost the minister of defense of Syria, right? Because it's the same neighborhood. So one of the interesting questions in this book is what exactly these guys are, are pretending to be, to what extent this is pretense. They have an interesting name for 
for themselves. They don't call themselves spies because they think that's a dishonorable name. They don't call themselves agents because they don't like the sound of that. They have a Hebrew word for what they're doing, and that word, which the L knows, is mistarvim. Mm -hmm. Mistarvim uh, is an a fascinating word in Hebrew. It can't be translated into English, but what it means basically is ones who become like Arabs. There's a word for that in Hebrew. You can conjugate it as a verb. Lehistarev is to become like an Arab. And it's quite amazing that there's a word for that in Hebrew. So that's what they call themselves. They say that they're mistarvim. They're ones who become like Arabs. But the, the question is, are they becoming like Arabs or are they actually Arabs? Right. <laughs> they are from the Arab world. They're native to the Arab world. Their native language is Arabic. Uh, if you can have Arab Christians, then why can't you have Arab Jews, they don't think of themselves as Arabs and their uh, Muslim neighbors for the most part do not think of them as Arabs, but it's a fuzzy line. It's not that clear. So like you said, the idea that there are Jews and Arabs and those are completely separate categories and this is a binary story, that's undermined by the story of these spies and that's one reason that I like this story. One thing that I took from the book and, and also from, from the fact that you know it's, it's striking the core that it's striking with readers is that Israel actually has succeeded in doing not all, but some of the work uh, of of sort of reconsidering its own oversimplified stories, right? As you said, like it used to be, even when I was growing up in Israel in the 70s and 80s, I've lived here for some years now, you've lived there for some years now. Uh, do you see this changing? Do you see the the story of, of Mizrahi Jews uh, becoming more and more part of the prominent narrative? In Israel, yes, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening slowly, and um, it's not always smooth. So sometimes it comes out in kind of uh, in, the in the form of outrage or painful memories about how people were absorbed or not absorbed to the state in the early years of, of Israel. But it's definitely happening. And if you look at our political system, for example, which used to be almost entirely, at least in the upper echelons, the preserve of Ashkenazim, now you see that the uh, finance minister in the outgoing government was from a Libyan family and the culture minister is from a Moroccan family and the justice minister is, I think, half Iraqi. And the head of the Labour Party, Avi Gabay, is Moroccan. And th things are things are changing. But what I hope happens is that the story begins to change. So I think what a lot of people do is they say, okay, we need to make this we need to put Mizrahi Jews in the center, so let's tell a story about their victimization in yeah. the early years of the state. Those stories are true, by the way, and they need to be dealt with. The stories of the Ma'abarot, these very rough immigration camps, and the, the way that they were absorbed by the, the labor Zionist establishment at the time, that's, that's very important. But that relegates them to the role of victims. Israel in 2019 is a country created in equal part by Jews who came from Europe and Jews who came from the Middle East. So it can't be that half of the country's citizens are just in the victim category. It belittles them. It marginalizes them. So what I'm trying to do in this book is tell a story in which they are agents. They're actors. They join the Zionist movement. They understand their ambiguous place in it. They understand they're being condescended to. And yet they put their lives on the line to create a Jewish state. In some cases, they pay with their lives for the creation of a Jewish state. And, and they're arrogant. Arabness, which is the characteristic that's preventing them from assimilating. It's their, it's their problematic characteristic. It's what makes them unwelcome. Their Arabness becomes their weapon in the service of the state. They go to the Arab section, and the way they help create a state is by being as Arab as possible. And there's something in the complexities of that story that seems good for 2019. These are good heroes for 2019, complicated heroes. Hallelujah. Mati Friedman, thank you so much. Spies of no country. I cannot wait for like the Hamilton version of this. <laughs> About like being. I just want to say, what would we do in the worldwide Jewish conspiracy without you, Mati? You're <laughs> the central linchpin 
you are a linchpin and that the that the anti-Semites haven't figured out how central you are to our world domination shows how stupid they are. I feel like if I'm that central, I should be making more. <laughs> That's right. Movie rights, I hope, for this very soon. <laughs> Let's hope. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. It is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Friends, we have a little pod business to take care of. First of all, thank you for all your conversion stories. You've sent us many, many uh, via email and on our listener line, and we are chock full of conversion stories now, and we hope to get to tons of them for the show. And if we don't get to yours this year, maybe we'll get to it next year, but we have listened to and read all of them. You converts and friends of converts, amazing. The the, the show is going to be so great. It's coming in early June. Uh, second bit of pod business, we got some live shows. May 29th, we will be in Hollis Hills in Queens. Leon Nafok of the podcast Slow Burn and the upcoming Fiasco podcast. Will be the Jew of the Week, and Claire Malone of the 538 Politics podcast will be our Gentile. Go to bit.ly slash UO Live Queens for your tickets. Chicago, June 26th, Blair Braverman, the Jewess who finished the Iditarod dog sled race, will be the Jew of the Week. She listened to Unorthodox as she was mushing her dogs. Does she mush? Do the dogs mush? How do we use that verb? We will ask her. June 26th in Chicago. Go to bit.ly slash unorthodoxchicago for your tickets. Also, my sister will be there. You can get a high five from my sister. May 30th, you can get a high five from me at Hebrew College in Boston. I will be emceeing their storytelling gala. 
Go to hebrewcollege.edu to get some tickets for that. That's May 30th. And finally, you can still join me at Thread at Yale. This is the storytelling conference with Catherine Burns, the artistic director of The Moth, with Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and many, many more. We will be at Yale University June 10th, 11th, and 12th. Go to thread.yale.edu. All right, the mailbox is chock full this week and has some good stuff. First off, here's a letter from a listener. A colleague of mine came up with an interesting idea in the form of a question to me this morning. He asked me, where is the Million Jew March on Washington demanding an end to anti-Semitism? While I, as a Jew, believe that anti-Semitism will always be with us, the idea of a march by this nation's Jews in significant force to protest the beginning of the end of our freedom in the USA, if the past is indeed being replayed before our eyes, seems to be a good one. Sam Prince. What do we think, guys? Million Jew march? But it'll be 300 Jews marching against anti-Semitism and then 400 Jews marching saying, well, it only happens on the right. And then 600 Jews marching saying, well, no, it only happens on the left. And then a thousand yeah, we, white and nationalists. Then a, and then a thousand white It would just it's be a Screaming mess. six million more. I think, I think you're right. I think Jews need to get on the same page a little bit more before we can do this march. But also we don't have the numbers. I mean, they're literally like, you know, a few million of us in the whole country. And I, we just, you know, if you have... 160 million women, if half the country's women, you can turn out a few hundred thousand in Washington, like just the numbers. But what if they were all are... over, right? And so everyone marched in your city and we actually did that. I would love that. I don't know that we're very good at marching as a people. I don't know if that's our thing. Actually, I don't think we want to march. I think yeah. the last time we had, were made to march, So what if we did like a walk? Or like <laughs> a, a run, like, walk, 5K. Like let's a, a bake-off? Let's do a book club. You know? How about we'll do a yeah. book club about books about marches? That's so right. I, I, but I think it's an interesting idea, and I would love to hear from our listeners. 914-570-4869. Would you come to a Jewish march against anti-Semitism on Washington? Here's another letter. Hi, guys. Long-time listener. Love the podcast. And recently, you've really made me think about what is and isn't goyish. As a small bit of background, I'm from a Russian Jewish family, born and part raised in the old country. Until listening to you guys, I had no idea that anyone considered mayonnaise goyish. It was a huge part of my Russian Jewish identity always. Lots of mayonnaise-based salads growing up. This this note makes me so happy. <laughs> Yours, and then she says, don't use my name. I'm too easily identifiable. Yours, a listener. That is the most parv letter ever. Like, why can't we use your name? What, who are you afraid of is, who's, who's going to be upset the, about the, your mayonnaise? The mustard police. <laughs> but it's interesting because the food pathways of Russian Jews and Soviet Jews are quite different. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's actually, not to plug the 100 Most Jewish Foods book, but there's a great essay in response to the borscht entry by Leah Zeltzerman, who is basically saying, Borscht is what you think of as Russian food if your grandpa if your great 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 grandparents emigrated from Russia. Right. If you're a Soviet Jew, borscht is 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 is, is food, food it's right? Food. Like it's not Jewish food. And so what Jewish food is is like trying to find your way around these 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 dietary laws that actually made it quite difficult to observe. You know, everyone in this all Soviet Jews ate pork because you just there were there were so many strictures in place to make sure that you could not identifiably observe your religion through food. Right. So it's it's not surprising that actually someone who grew up as a Russian Jew ate mayonnaise all the time. And then, Though, and then sometimes you come into these, you come into this realization in the strangest ways. Like I went to a Jewish Russian restaurant on Passover and usually, you know, Passover, oh my God, what can I eat? What can't I eat? It was like, hey, I'm in a Russian restaurant. It's all fish and like, 
you know, potatoes. It was awesome. Low carb. It should be said, though, I actually was, I think, 38 years old before I realized that mayonnaise is not dairy, that it's parv, and you can put it on anything. Yeah, so I always just assumed it was dairy. Mayonnaise, it, it, it's it's eggs with, with vinegar. Um, it's, it's like oil, egg yolk, and vinegar, and then something acidic. So and, vinegar, and lemon juice. And you can add some mustard and whatever, but but uh, you can add cannabis, you can add whatever. But the point is, it's actually not, I mean, I think I always thought, well, it's goyish because it's dairy. You wouldn't put it on corned beef because then it's not kosher. Because it's white. But actually, it's just super white and it's super Midwest. In America, it just reads as the thing that Midwestern Gentiles put in casseroles, which is- Can I just say no human being on the planet could make a single can of tuna fish go farther than my aunt? And if you took her mayonnaise away, you would be tying both of her hands behind her back in the kitchen. That's hot. Ooh, I'll tie your grandma's aunt. hands behind her back. <laughs> okay, want to play the one? All right, All right no, wait, wait, we have one more to get. Th- we have, here we go. Uh, now, my favorite letter of the week. Dear Unorthodox, I'm still listening to you talk about being scolded for telling Holocaust jokes, and I have to write to tell you not to stop. I'm the child of two Holocaust survivors. Both have passed away. I am dipped in the Shoah. It finds its way into everything I do. I'm 57 and still in therapy sorting it out. I'm an only child and got, as a friend of mine puts it, the full force of the second generation blast. Bottom line, I consider it a blessing and a limp. I wouldn't give it up for anything. So I'm very judgmental about how the Shoah is remembered. That said... Dark humor was a big part of my upbringing. My mother went to a couple reunions of the OSE, the group that saved her. We called them camp reunions. Also, I never wanted to go to sleepaway camp, and my mother's response was, yeah, I didn't like camp either. (laughs) Both of my parents would have loved the Ellie Wiesel joke. I can hardly wait to tell it to my kids, who are 26, 22, and 18, so it's okay. They will love it. Keep it up. Keep it all up. You're a great voice for modern Yiddishkeit, Holocaust jokes, and all. (laughs) He then adds, I should say, and, and, and this is this is important. He says, in this vein and as the child of a survivor, I have one wish for Yom HaShoah that maybe you could help with. It needs to be a fast day. My parents and survivors in general talked so much about hunger and starvation. I never let my kids say I'm starving because that's very different from just being really hungry. Anyway, if we can fast for Esther and Gedalia, what better way to remember those who died and survived in the Shoah, especially now that we're losing them? Just skip a meal, anything to feel hunger and think about feeling that way for the whole day or the whole week or the month. Looking forward to being at the show in Chicago, Michael Blue, Deerfield, Illinois. I love this. I love idea. this letter. I want to say that, Michael, I love the way you describe like being dipped in the Shoah yeah. and like this idea of a blessing on a limb, because I think that really does accurately, so perfectly and and beautifully portray what it's like to live with this legacy and to be sort of haunted and obsessed by it. And it's not, you know, and, and, and feel a pride in it, right? But I do love the idea of a fast day. Here's a crazy idea. How about we combine all the letters of this week and have the million Jew march on Yom Hashoah while we fast? So and everyone only is, mayonnaise. Which, by the way, it makes perfect sense because we're protesting anti-Semitism, right? So we're going to be cranky because we're hangry. And then we're going to march and feel like that much better. But it's interesting because like I... The idea of the fast for Esther and some good Ali, we make fun of it all the time. Like I don't, it doesn't resonate with me. But like if we did a fast day for the for for Yom Hashoah, that would actually be meaningful, I think, to a lot of people. Let's get it started. This guy's next, profound. Next, next year, what's his name, Michael? Michael. Next year in Deerfield. Next year, Michael. The unorthodox crew will be fasting with you. But which one are we going to do? We're going to do international in January or Yom Ha in May. Yom Ha. Okay. Yom Ha. Yeah. The original, the OG. Yeah. Our Gentile of the Week is a super Gentile. It's the comedian Pete Holmes. If you're lucky, you know his just-canceled HBO comedy, Crashing, in which he portrays a fictionalized 
I would say lightly fictionalized version of himself as a comedian trying to make it in New York and so broke that he has to crash on other comedians' sofas. Very, very funny show. He has a new book out called Comedy Sex God. It's published this week. And Liel and I are both big fans of his work. The book is about his journey from evangelical Christianity, in which he was raised, through a bout of nihilistic atheism into the arms of the New Age spiritual guru Ram Das, who it turns out Liel is also a big fan of. So we sat down with him and we plunged right into the conversation. It might be a little hard to pick up where we are, but let's just say we were laughing and having a good time and talking about Jesus, HBO, vodka, and Ram Das. Have a listen. So you're trained in the art of be here now, and you're in a profession that makes you stand up on a stage night know, after and night. Think. And think. Right. Yeah. How no. does that? It's tricky. I mean, um, I've t- I told my friend Michael Gunger, who has another book that I plug as many times as I can. It's called This. It's basically about non-duality. It's incredible. Changed my life. And I, I was hanging out with him the other night, and I was like, you know, I, I find myself, I still feel funny. But I, I write different types of jokes now. The, the feeling behind the jokes is different. It's more like I'd like to communicate something rather than like in the first maybe decade or so more of my stand-up career, maybe 20 years of my stand-up career, you are doing a lot of thinking. And this is why comedians are often uh, atheists, maybe. It, it, one is because they're very in, intelligent and obviously God is not really a, something you can approach rationally, right. not directly. You can definitely get it with your intellect, but it's it's not easy to sort of circumnavigate all the all the doubt through your intellect. Right. That and their, you know, horrible crushing childhoods. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah they have a big wound. Mm-hmm. But we don't necessarily uh, use that wound to to kind of get to the other side. Anyway, now but before I found all this be here now, I would write a lot of comedy about thinking about things. And I sort of write about that in the book that I would go to a museum so stuck in my head that I would not experience a single piece of art. And that, that was a, a kind of a conversion experience for me was that I was looking at art and I was looking at God in the wrong way, that I was thinking about art or thinking about music. And that's very funny. That's where often humor can come from. It's like this painting is better or worse or bigger or smaller or more colorful or less colorful or more accurate or more abstract. All these analyses that you can then share under lights and amplification and make people laugh, make their brains laugh. But the more you get into a hard space, you are sort of a a little bit more like a flower child going like, you know, the the phone on the wall in the museum is also a piece of art. And that's not really that funny. Mm -hmm. Like the brain is very funny. I don't know how funny the heart is, but I try to, to bring more of the heart into the things I say with my head, if that makes sense. Hallelujah. (laughs) So I don't know if it's working. No, I mean, um, we're talking with Pete Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> author of God. So we were wondering about the absence of, of commas. I mean, yeah, comedy, I sex, God. I know. Eat, shoots, and leaves. Comedy, sex, <laughs> God. But this you is know a, what I wish we had there's a certain it? arrogance to I comedy, know, sex, God. I know. And the other books that come up on Amazon are all guys with abs, and it's called like <laughs> sex, God. And the <laughs> other Rob one, Schneider. <laughs> you know those abs. He has an ab. Um, I, wish I, I wish I had called it comedy and sex and God. You know how people have those shirts yes. and stuff now? It yes. would have been very with the times. So I, I, I don't really have regret, but that would have been a better title perhaps. But then like I said to my editor, uh, the wonderful Luke Dempsey, who was like, let's do it this way because people will misunderstand it. And it, I was like, at least it'll give you something to talk about. Like, right. what do you mean? Or at least you pick it up and you go, what? who is this asshole? What? Or <laughs> what? What? But you read the book, you realize on page two. Yeah. That is not what I'm talking about. So it was interesting. Like I 
didn't know your work till about six months ago. And then I was like, I'll try this crashing thing. And I binged it all night. And then then the galleys for this arrived. And I was like, this is this oh, is my boy chick. Wow. And then I read this and it, and then so I and I love the book and it's sort of up from up from Christianity. Uh, maybe that's an unfair thing. You don't feel like you've grown out of Christianity. You feel I like, sure do. Do you? Okay. <laughs> all right, you said it, not but me. But I mean it's condescending. It's you have to be delicate with your language. I don't right. wanna those are still my tribe and religion, as we all know, first and foremost is an identity building and culture right. building For sure. system. And so many of us enjoy it as that thing. Right. But do I consider myself post-Christian? Yeah. <laughs> so then I went on this 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 Pete Holmes binge and I was listening to um, and I was so interested because, I, you know, I studied Christianity before I really knew about my own tradition about Judaism. I was like academically oh, wow. interested in Christianity. And you went to Gordon College, which is a place that I know of and know yeah. people have gone there. And then I was listening to the podcast you did with Dak Shepard. Mm-hmm. And one point you're talking, I forget, you know, it's two hours. It was a great long, I don't know, do you remember that? I do, that, yeah. That jam with him. And at one point you're explaining a joke you told maybe that involved Esau and Jacob. And one was a hairy man and one was a smooth man. Yeah. And one was, and Dak's just like, he wasn't biblically illiterate, but it was pretty clear you had to spell out for him yeah. who they were. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And I realized you walk through a world as, as we do, we're like, yeah. you have all this Bible knowledge right, yeah. that most of your fellow kind of like comedy club going liberals, even other Christians, liberals, even other Christians yeah, and uh, even other Jews are yeah. like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like to say I out-Jew Jews a lot. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, I read the Bible like even once that, yeah, yeah that's all You're it takes. Yeah. Well, it's true for right. Christians as well. But maybe like you, when some when something was so prevalent in our culture, first and foremost, but then also like just the the allure of a holy text was so interesting to me. And those stories, I mean, Jacob and Esau is like a a fundamental piece of my psyche. Right. You know what I mean? I don't mean like it's I'm always thinking about it. I mean, it filled a gap in my vocabulary, even understanding my relationship with my own brother. Oh, Which interesting. Sort of right. to say, yeah, but we had some of that going. Um, I, I was a dweller of tents. <laughs> and and he, he's hairy. He's, and not, he's hairy. he's not red, but he's hairy. <laughs> and there was sort of like a a blessing situation. I, I don't want to get, that almost feels too personal. Right. Those, those I've never very said well, that. Usually the dwellers of tents. Well, I was with my mom. I was the gift of gab guy. And I was like, I think the real power is with the women and learning how to like, I, I guess you could say manipulate and figure out how to use charm. And and he had more of that? No, he was out trying to impress my father by being more manly. More manly. Yeah. So that story really resonated with me. But right. you were saying it's interesting no, it just, that we both have that sort of I just, knowledge that other people don't share. Yeah, I was like, I know exactly that feeling of yeah. like you're talking to someone who is your peer in so many ways, but then you lapse into some thing that is super esoteric to them and yet is so obvious right. like to you. So, I, so, But you recently had a baby, yeah. and she's not going to be raised with all the same stories. I know. It sort of breaks my heart. And I actually wanted—that yeah. was a weird place to jump in, but her name is Leela, right? Yeah, Leela. She's mm-hmm. how old? She's seven months. And oh. so I was wondering, yeah. like— is that's she going to be raised response. with, you know, now that you're a follower of Ram Dass, like what's, do you miss the, fa- do you regret the fact that she's not going to have that trove of, of common stories? She'll know those stories. She will? I think. I mean, it really depends on her. I'm, I don't mean to be too new agey or whatever, but I, I'm, I'm waiting for feedback on her and I don't really have a, a, a drive to turn her into me. I'd like to see who she is. I say it to her all the time. It's gonna. It's 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 emotional. It's a little sweet. I just say I'm here to help. That's what I say to my baby now. What does she say back? She says, <laughs> "I say, you know, you're welcome here." I think is a powerful thing to say to a baby and a child. You're welcome. 
like she, you know, to borrow something from the Hindus, she has her karma to make it a little less Eastern. You could just say she is a part of the lawful unfolding of this universe and she's welcome. You know what I mean? It's going to make You'll say to her, please stop crying because daddy has to write a new HBO show. <laughs> <laughs> if you want diapers and you know, baby my, food. My just... deadline was right when she was uh, born and it wasn't an issue. It was, she's, she was a good baby. But like, I think back on that time when I was trying to write this book and <laughs> like deal with the baby, deal with, I mean, really, that's the right word. You're dealing with something that's crying that's right. and doesn't know why it's crying. And, and you don't know why it's crying. And you Nobody don't know what knows. you have to do. But to she's, a, she's a very, 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 very good baby. Uh, and she even was back then. We, we didn't know how lucky we were. But um, I, I think about that cultural identity. So. Right, you had this thing. Like you were, I mean, you say at one point, like that the high of Christian conformity. You talk about in the book, like you were part of a tribe and you guys had similar languages and similar rituals. You knew where your pals were on Sunday morning. And what's the, like, I know. What's the tribe now? I know. And there are some people that I know that were raised in the Ram Dassi way and they actually didn't rebel, which is pretty interesting. Like, I know some, like, 20 somethings named Shiva, you know, (laughs) that just, that seem like pretty into it. And and that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, okay, so we said at the beginning that, like, religion is fundamentally from, if you look at the world, most of it, um, well, I'm going to I'm going to wager uh, a guess. This is a safe, safe space. <laughs> a lot of it mm-hmm. is used for identity, right? So Reza Aslan, the author and the religious scholar, he did my podcast and he was like the primary function is identity, right? And then Reza Ramdas says you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. So you can't really raise your child to be one with everything because they already are that. And then right right around age seven, that's usually where the wound comes and the ego is built and then there's the forgetting. And that's all built into it. I think that's one of the main messages of the book is that like all of it belongs, including the time when you, your wife leaves you or you lose your faith. It's all sort of in the lawful unfolding of the universe, the undulating of the fountain that we're all sort of a part of in this infinite cosmic Mm -hmm. flowy way. So, that being said, I mean... So you're saying children should get their own wounds. I, I mean, wounds. spiritually, yeah. Absolutely. To have their own process yeah. of... Of like affection and disaffection. Right, stumbling. Yeah. Absolutely. Falling upward is what Richard Rohr would call that. It, is, is, it's like we need the necessary suffering. There's certainly unnecessary suffering uh, that we can prevent and work against. But everybody needs that. I've been quoting this a lot today, and I, I should have Googled it, who said it. But you guys, if you like it, you can Google it. It's uh, first comes the fall, then comes the recovery from the fall. Both are the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And that is... A, a big point of the book. I got that from Richard Rohr in his book, Falling Upward. So me, first comes the divorce and comes the losing of the faith and then comes the recovery, but both were uh, the grace of God. That being said, to go back to your original question, I think you can't be my friend, let alone my child, and not have Bible stories come up, teachings of Christ come up. And whether or not we decide to maybe go to like, I don't know, a Unitarian or a Quaker church for some sort of sense of community. Yeah. Val and I have been to a Quaker meeting in L.A. uh, ourselves. We just don't feel uh, the need for it. But if, if that seems to be good for our kid 
and for her sense of self, then maybe we would do that. It's interesting, though, like when you, I've spent so much time around evangelicals, and when you've been raised in a pretty thick evangelical <laughs> setting, a lot of those liberal religions, and this is where we'll get the angry Unitarian male, but like they can feel pretty thin. Like <laughs> Angry Unitarians like, are th- such a thing. They're really rageful. They're like suicide the bombing all over the place. But uh, they, they will argue you out of your belief in God very angrily. And, <laughs> you know, it's like the hymns aren't good, and they do something different every week. And this, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if you found your way. I mean, Ram Dass is so much like, there's so much, it's so much meatier in that like the books are interesting and the ideas are to interesting. To go back. Yeah, like. I'm not closed off to it. As long as somebody isn't, um, you know, packing in all that fear that that came with my faith. Whether whether or not, the, my, my church didn't really preach fear, but if you went digging, you would always find it. And it was always there. It was like, you know, it was the flaming elephant in the room. There's a, there's a joke there. Let's not do it. <laughs> there's an on-fire elephant that, that's like, no matter what the message was, I was hearing, believe this or burn. Or else. Right, right. And also, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier. I was like, Atheism is a compassionate and beautiful choice if the alternative is my faith, where part of my faith is believing that six million Jews in the Holocaust are also still in torturous eternity. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, then who's more, which is a more compassionate belief that those people just went away and, you know, the peace of the grave or the people that are like, well, they didn't know what I knew and they didn't believe what I believe. No baptism, no peace. I once, I think I've told you this story, Liel. I was once interviewing a big megachurch preacher down in Jacksonville, Florida, um, and we were backstage. We were in his green room before he went out to do the, like, rock and roll show for 2,000 people. (laughs) And I was pressing him with those, like, junior high level questions because they're pretty obvious questions about, like, well, what, and I don't think I played the Holocaust card, but I think I said, like, what about the couple billion Chinese the holocard. That's, can we use that? <laughs> yeah, of okay. course. What about those couple billion Chinese people who died before the, let's say before Christianity even got there, right? Like, yeah. let's take out any possibility they knew it because the Christians hadn't arrived yet and they're, maybe they have Confucian traditions or whatever, but they never know Christ. Zero chance. Are all those souls burning? And he said to me, I kid you not, he said, well, I just have to think that somehow they got Christ's word. Like maybe a missionary was passing through. Maybe a pigeon dropped a note on That's them. That's what I and they, would have said. I mean, he really said somehow the good I would ones have got said Christ's word. The, the wind would have like whispered the truth to them. But I was saying you're putting a burden on these Confucianists that uh, you couldn't do yourself. So you're asking another culture to do the impossible thing that you couldn't, that you could never do, which is to reject the faith of you and your family and your country because you have a, a, a weird, subtle feeling or something. I, like, I just don't see it. Like, you would never do that. Right. What kind of good person would, who would that appeal to? Like, is that guy with his megachurch going out and looking at a waterfall and going like, am I wrong? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think he's doing... Is it possible that yeah. I'm not correct about... <laughs> he's cheering what he does yeah. and, and, and basically cheerleading, you know, Richard Rohr calls... A lot of churches membership. It's all about membership and it's about worshiping the signposts, you know, which I love. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's like we have this sign that says this way to Cleveland. And, and this is Richard Rory goes, just go to Cleveland. That, like, <laughs> right. stop worshiping the mm-hmm. sign. And, th- and that is a big point of my book is like, it, it, and it's so liberating. I can't, I never tire of saying it. It's like, no part of me wants to turn either of you, although it sounds like we agree. I don't want to turn you guys into me. I don't want to turn my daughter into me. I don't want to turn people listening into me. What I want to do is help people do what all mystical traditions are trying to do, which is help you realize that you are not who you think you are, which is the false self or the small self, and that to realize that your inherent dignity 
your inherent oneness and withness and belovedness in your participation in this universe. And that's when you realize that you're not your personality and you're not your thoughts and you, you settle into that quiet place, that's where peace is and that's where joy is. I think whatever is happening, uh, this sounds very woo-woo and, and sort of bullshit, but I think it's true. It's like what's happening is what's happening and it's your teacher. It really is your curriculum. So you can come at this by being a comedian and keeping weird hours and doing, you know, drinking too blow. much and yeah. doing blow. Threesomes. And, and threesomes. The book's got everything. Man. Oh, <laughs> well, no blow. <laughs> That's for the sequel. Yeah. I'll save it. And, yeah. Comedy Coke God. Um, but the idea was... Me and the baby, four in the morning, <laughs> doing lines. Doing lines off the baby's ass. It got so dark. Yeah, you really got very dark there, Mark. Shame ah, on you. Ah, too much Artie Lang in my TV She's diet. She's a long baby, too. <laughs> I mean, a long so is mine. I have a tall baby, really? shockingly. Yeah, yeah, long lines yeah. of coke on my baby. <laughs> but um, I think you can find it wherever you are. You know what I mean? I, again, Richard has this great thing where he's like, there are people sitting in church right now that are in hell, and there are people that are in heaven that have never been to church, mm-hmm. like currently right now. So I think what I benefited from being in the group of comedians is um, we're, we're, we like to think— we like to dissect, which is why often we're atheists and which is why a lot of us don't marry, and you know, because we always want to be outside of the thing talking right. about the thing. But then, you know, after— Is that true? Do, a lot of, do comedians not marry? A lot of us don't. Interesting. I, I remember when I had a baby, uh, Bill Burr was like, you got out. Like that, was, <laughs> that was still sort of the feeling. Yeah. Like, he had a baby, and he got out. Like, yeah, we're wow. like a group of weirdos and misfits. So if you can do that and also have a family. But then, like, I think even more importantly, if you can do that and, like, maybe uncover some connection to your birthright or to the Spirit of God in you. Um, but I think you can do that with it, with whatever you're doing. And the great thing about comedians is we like to talk about most things. Most comedians, though, in my experience, stop. At going like you, you really mean to tell me that like a snake, like look at all the the great bits that are sort of anti-theist. Mm-hmm. They're just like a snake tell two naked people, to, and then like, okay, that deconstruction is very base. But most of them leave it there. They 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 stuck their stick in. They hit some bullshit, and then they go, well, this is all bullshit. This book could be called like, well, what's past the bullshit? Right. Can we can we start looking at Genesis? which never claimed to be a textbook, as a poem, as a, as a piece of poetry, as, as a myth. That's a, a big part of the book is learning mm-hmm. what a myth is, that it's not right. true or not true. It's what do you call truer. Joseph Campbell again? Joey Cam. Joey Cam. Joey Cam. Yeah. I had a high school teacher who was super into Joseph Campbell. It's very funny because a lot of people discover him like in their 20s or yeah, 30s. Yeah. And what passed for the philosophy department in my high school was this crazy guy, wonderful genius named Dr. Phelan. He was Sicilian. And philosophy 101 was basically you just read Joseph Campbell. So I yeah. got to college and discovered philosophy like usually it's more like Plato and Eric. It's not the hero with a wow. thousand faces. And I was like, what? It's not but the PBS in, special. In high school, yeah. it was Dr. Phelan saying, the hero is a journey along Whoa. the... And we were just... Everyone who got through like the AP track my high school could talk the the, the hero's journey. It was like our text. And so I was so excited when that came up. But you, the book kind of, it starts with Jesus and it ends with Ram Dass. And in between, you drink too much. (laughs) I did. That was really interesting for me because I didn't, that came out of nowhere. Like you weren't raised, I guess your dad was, he went to the bar after work. Yeah, it's sort of, 
you know, sprinkled in there that there was something going on. And did you just lose, do you just not have the urge to overdrink now or is it still kind of? I stopped drinking about a year and a half ago, full stop. That had a lot to do with having a baby, but it also had to do with the fact that I just realized I was addicted to alcohol. I know um, in the same way that I'm addicted to sugar, I, I, I don't mean to say and get careful with my words here. I never really identified as an alcoholic. I just felt like somebody that like, I just go big. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds stupid, but like... No, no, no. Trust me. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm just like a loud, That's hungry that mm-hmm. Whatever this is, it's you loud and it's hungry. Yeah, yeah big good appetites. Yeah. And I can't have cookies in the house. Now I can have alcohol in the house. Uh, it doesn't have the same thing for me. But if I had a little bit, I would want a lot. It's, it's just like a... <laughs> so I realized that um, alcohol. I always love to plug this book. Great audiobook. It's called um, This Naked Mind. And I listen to it. And I'm a good brain in the sense that if you give me the intel, I can change my behavior. Uh-huh. So I can watch the movie Fed Up, for example, and get off sugar. Uh-huh. But I need the intel. And then I'll be like, I got to stop eating so much fucking ice cream. And then I, I listen to This Naked Mind. And I was just like, oh, the summation of it is alcohol is sold to us as like liberty. It's sold to us as freedom. It's like it's a glass of no one tells you what to do. God damn it. And then when you realize that it's been marketed that way by people that don't give a fuck about you. Sure. They don't give a fuck about you. And it's not liberty. It's actually selling your liberty to a very addictive chemical. For me, and alcohol just is, I know that there's some people out there that are just like, I don't understand. Well, not me. And maybe that does make me an alcoholic. I don't know. But like if I... At the rap parties for crashing, I used to buy everyone shots, but they weren't shots; they were Manhattans, <laughs> and I would just be sh- <laughs> shooting shots and shooting pint glasses. Yeah. yeah, and that is not normal. But you know, I think I was masking a lot of the feelings that I'm talking about in the book. If you're raised believing that everyone's going to hell and these are the stakes of the game, and that you have a transactional relationship with God, if then, if I'm good, if I don't jerk off, if I don't swear, if I don't do drugs, even if I don't drink, then God will love me. Of course, you're going to be driven. You have cognitive dissonance. Right. I I say, like, we've made a God that's like us instead of the other way around, right? We should be like God. And the God that I see when I look at nature, I see thousands of species of flowers. I see a, a nature that loves and nourishes diversity. And those flowers are loved indiscriminately by the light and the rain. And God didn't just make one type of flower, but we're going around trying to turn all the flowers into our flower. It's just fucked up. We turned it into the worst parts of ourselves instead of the best parts of our nature. But here's something that I'm struggling with. This is such a beautiful way to put it. But I'm reading your book, right? And Which I couldn't stop masturbating. Now, I, can I just, he was just drinking and I was, like, I was <laughs> masturbating. He wasn't as one of those I was reading. I mean, yeah. isn't, isn't that a mental image? That's, that's it. disturbing. Okay. I love it. Uh, now is also the point to to say again, again, again to our listeners. Uh, absolutely brilliant. You must pause the show right now. Go on Amazon. Buy it. Comedy Sex God, Pete Holmes. And now you've returned to us. Did you the do the audio book? The comedy. It's not a comedy sex god. The only comedy sex god. I did do the audio You did the audio book. I'm reading this book, and and here you are, and you grow up in this house, and you describe it. I mean, you're obviously funny about it, but it's 
it's kind of heartbreaking. You know, your parents fight every night. It makes me sad. And you're standing there. You said something like, you know, here comes the the butt-clenching portion, right? (laughs) You're standing there completely silent, a terrified kid, waiting for the shouting to stop. And then you kind of crawl into bed with your mother who's sobbing just to calm her down and make her laugh. So here comes this kid, right? And then this kid goes to church, discovers all the comforts and joys and wonders of of Jesus. And that holds on for a while until it doesn't anymore, at which point this kid discovers uh, you know, should we say abandon uh, drugs yeah. uh, and Rumspringa. and Rumspringa for yeah. a, a long period of time, and also happens to be really, really good at doing something, you know, telling jokes, being a comedian, a writer, a, a performer. Um, th- that uh, ha- also happens to be like the new cool thing right. that is suddenly ascendant. My question is this, and I, I think it's a question that a lot of people listening are going to struggle with: What gives you? the type of strength to kind of stop the merry-go-round and say like, okay, this ride is amazing, mm. but there's there's more. There's more than this. Right. There's, there's joy. There's happiness. Well, I think I, I talk about that in the book. The second season of Crashing, I was really depressed. I think I might have even sugar-coated it a little bit <laughs> because I didn't want to sound ungrateful. It's so good, by the way. Oh, good. Thank you. The darkness really shines I'm glad. Through. Well, that's when the drinking was sort of mm-hmm. at its worst, and I, I, I write about mixing up the liquor stores that I would go to. That was... Because they would recognize Quite me. a detail. Like, yeah. you didn't want the liquor store owners to think poorly of you. Yeah. Right? Well, Imagine would... what it takes to get a liquor store owner and be like, that guy's in here a lot. Uh, it's like, uh, sir, you may have a problem. <laughs> it's true. But, I mean, I was worried because they, some of the, a lot of them seemed to watch HBO. So I'd be like, hey. I'd take pictures sometimes with the owners and I'd be like, well, I'm going to have to go to a different one. It's like, one. hi, my name's Ike Barinholtz. Can I please uh, have a fifth of whiskey? Hilarious. I'm so glad you like the new girl um but uh you know jim carrey has that great quote where he says i I wish everybody could have their dreams come true so that they could realize that that's not the answer Mm -hmm. and so i i see uh there's a couple things that can wake us up richard Rohr talks about great love or great suffering and then i might add to that great success potentially anything can wake you up but one of them is definitely getting everything that you ever wished for so i tell that story about being in the golf cart with bill burr and he says you know i tell you pete if that doesn't make you happy nothing will and i was miserable (laughs) and i was i said the best acting i did was off camera i was pretending to be happy and not even a very good job i feel like if my wife had been there that day she would have known something was wrong with me but like most people were just like yeah he seems fine Mm -hmm. i remember i didn't write about this in the book but there was a scene i was shooting with jamie lee and i was like I'm miserable. And and she was like, you can't tell. And it's so fucked up that I was like relieved that no one could tell. Right. It's like, oh, good. I, I want everybody to be having a good time. I don't want to. you're like dying on the inside. Yeah, I don't want to bother anybody. You might have said this in the book. I read it a couple months ago when I first first got it. But did did you do therapy? I, uh, not at that time. I, I have been heavily therapized. Because that, that's what therapists are for, is like, they're the people you can be sad with. Right. When you can't be sad with anyone totally. else, right? I felt like I could be sad with my wife. I didn't okay. have to hide it from her. But you're sort of the captain of the ship. Right. You're the head of the corporation, so you don't want to, like, Mickey Mouse can't be crying in Disneyland. <laughs> right. So, like, That'd be so funny. Ah, <laughs> you know, he might the, be. It's a big on head. The floor. <laughs> you don't know what's going on. Why do you want? Why Goofy. Is neck wet? Yeah. <laughs> the, neck, the neck hole is just moist. <laughs> Um, that's gross, but, uh, that was a, that was a, a, an awakening moment. And what's so funny was like so much of life. And I think you guys can probably relate is remembering 
and then forgetting, and then remembering yep. and forgetting. And sometimes you do that 50, 60, 1,000 times That's why in, you keep getting back together with her. Mm-hmm. What's that? It's why you, the girlfriend. That's why you keep getting back oh, together with yeah. her. You forget. I thought you meant God, that too. No, also, that, same exact dynamic, by yeah. the way. No, it is. It's a fucked up relationship. Be yeah. like, oh, we have so much fun together. Why Why didn't we stay? Oh, that's why we didn't stay together. Right. That's interesting. Right, because you make me crazy and super judgmental. <laughs> is it you or is it me? Yeah. You know, you could you could do this that's all day true. long. Right. But I think that's that's sort of built into it. it. For me, it's more like I remember my place in the universe and my sort of equanimous oneness with everything. And then I just get lazy and I stop meditating or I stop reading or I stop having good conversations or good music or just quiet, any of those good things that sort of feed your soul. And then I, I just coasted. And that's what I was doing the second season. I, I think I say in the book, I was like, I went to two many two entree dinners like you can't choose between an entree so you get both and just share it with the table but eat most of it and i was on a boat on the on the east east river whichever one goes by the statue of liberty and we're like jumping in the water and there were literally i was with my wife but there were it was like an episode of entourage there were literally like women that didn't have bathing suits so they were skinny dipping (laughs) and i was just there like drunk and eating on a private boat in the river and i was like this is it, right? This is the greatest it ever gets. And th- this is the big point of the book is like looking to please the animal or uh, St. Francis of the corpse, just our meat puppets, to quote, well, Nirvana covered the meat puppets. But anyway, he's wearing a Nirvana <laughs> shirt. Um, it's just, it's just uh, bullshit. Thomas Merton, the, the Catholic mystic, says we climb the ladder and we get to the top and we realize nothing's there. That's right. But that's grace. That's another thing that can wake you up. So, so there you are, and I felt this malaise, and that's when I got back in. Have you been able to take that realization into a, an industry where you're always looking over your shoulder or ahead of you at, like, well, that guy has the career I want, or that woman has the, her show got four seasons, or right. her stand-up special did such big numbers? I mean, it's it's one of those careers, not unlike writing, you know, which, which again, you also do. All of these are, are, are right. vocations where there's no— No um, plumber ever says, oh, my God, you know, right. Jimmy just got— I know. Well, it's like yeah. if you're a heart surgeon, you save the patient, you did good. You couldn't do any better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not that they don't have their own ambitions and probs or whatever, but you never get the brass ring in comedy or like, well, that's the best joke ever told, right? right. It's all And ephemeral. I live in a town where like they put up billboards for the other shows yep. that get like awards and stuff. So when we didn't get awards, for example, you'd walk around and you'd, I love Barry, so it was very deserving, but you'd see the billboard and and it's a it's a it's a good moment for the soul right. to go like oh there's Barry got thirteen Emmys or whatever and, right. and so I live in the Are town. You like, I hope Bill Hader is miserable right now. <laughs> I hope he's sitting in the dark room crying doing to himself, <laughs> taught, doing shots of Manhattan's, doing exactly. impressions of fifty crying celebrities. That's right. <laughs> By the way, I think your show is much better than Barry. Oh, that's very. Sweet I'm not. Of you. I like. I got through three episodes of Barry. It was good. Your show, I couldn't stop watching. That's very sweet. Well, I, I, I made a show that I really love, too, so I appreciate that. But, I mean, it, there's obviously a temptation, but that's that's another thing that can wake you up. It's like, right. when is it going to be enough? I had a billboard in, in our neighborhood that was for crashing, and then when we went off uh, for the season, it wasn't even when we were canceled, they put up another one. It was like T-Mobile, and it said, four free cell phones. <laughs> so you're like, oh, I'm four free cell phones. Oh, that. This is another thing that can wake you up. <laughs> like, it's a Buddhist idea. Like, zoom out is something I love to say. It can scare people, but if you're having a thing and you're like, she forgot my birthday, like, zoom out. Big picture, All people. the way out yeah. to the planet. Yeah. And consider that, like, one of the like just organisms on this thing is like she forgot my birthday 
a thing that's measured by how many times right. the big thing goes around the other glowing big thing. And consider that one of the organisms in this pond is being a little bitch right now. That's and right. Please stop. And, and, it's, her. and it's all yeah, it's funny. And it's already broken. The, you know, the cup is already broken. Is the Buddhist thing? So, it's, what is the game that's lasting? I think my obsession, and make no mistake, I'm an achiever, and none of this is by mistake. I wrote a book, I made a show, and blah blah blah. I'm, I'm eating, I'm eating. I have that right. appetite. Well, you too. had time to work, you know, in between. Well, sure, yeah. but like what I'm saying is, I'm in this too. I'm also living this life and I'm playing the game. But I think getting to the higher levels of the game is one of the things that can make you go like, this is for free cell phones. It doesn't matter. Barry is also for free cell phones. Anyway, he's five. He's five. (laughs) (laughs) He's 13 free cell phones. But you know, it's all for free cell phones. So like, I, I mentioned that in the book, like when the game shifts from collecting as much stuff as if you're going to be on your deathbed and go like, I won an Emmy. Right. You're not. I right. promise you, you're not. I've never died, but I'm yeah. gonna be that bold you know. here and say, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That I remember. Daughter, come closer. Right. You know what the happiest <laughs> moment in my life was? Right. That Emmy. I think we're ta- once the game shifts from collecting stuff. Jesus says, "Don't store your treasure where moth and rust uh, corrupt." Right. So, what is the treasure? The lasting treasure, and this is what all the traditions are going for. It's remembering who you are. So, the suffering and the success, whatever the game is, I, I look at it like. It's almost like God is rocking the boat, you know, going like, how much do I have to do this for you to, like, remember? So you you write in the book that your mother's (laughs) biggest dream was for you you to become a youth pastor. And Uh when you said, I'm going to be a comedian, she said, close enough. Yeah. This is a Jewish show. The approval of mothers is something that we take very seriously. Very seriously. Yeah. Uh, have you, is she very delighted now that you uh, have ascended into uh, real profound depths of, of human <laughs> experience and understanding? I appreciate that. And portrayed your relationship with her on national television as <laughs> vaguely know. incestuous and, and weird. And, yeah. that <laughs> and we toned it down. Um, <laughs> we... Um, yeah, the only difference on crashing is when she sat on my lap, I moved her off <laughs> because the director was too uncomfortable. <laughs> Everybody agreed that the optics were just wrong. Just wrong. They were like, it, it doesn't look how you think it looks. I'm like, I know how it looks. It's my life. <laughs> this is my life. But it was also uncomfortable for me, so I was more than happy to move um, the wonderful Audrey, the actress, off. But... um the question was about my mother. Oh, is yeah. she proud? Well, she read the book, and as you mentioned, there's, uh, you know, she was, she said, you've had, she was like, I got to the weird part in your book, and I was like, well, what, what, what could <laughs> Which that part mean? Is That's that? what I said. Yeah. I was like, it could be when I took mushrooms. It could be, as you mentioned, I talk about uh, sex stuff, having a three way, and she meant when I found Ramdas and Maharaji and all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so she was sort, and I was like, I thought you meant. The sex stuff. And she went, you mean the three-way? I was like, I just never knew you were that creative. Right. <laughs> That's what she said. She thought that was an exercise in creativity, which I guess it sort of is. Um, but, you know, I had to surrender. I used to send my mother a lot of books. and uh, Like Ram Dass, like, yeah. you know, Mom, you need to read this. I'd you'd send her talks. You'd prescribe books for her. I would prescribe yeah. books to her. Yeah. And at a certain point, I had to do two things. One, I had to tell my mom that my work isn't for, for her. And I think that's an important thing for any creative or and I don't mean just the arts. I mean, any person making something creative, right. uh, it could be architecture. You just be like, it's not for you. And I say, Mom, it would be it's in weird. part about, but entirely yeah. not for you. Not for yeah. you. I had to give it to my in-laws, too. And I was just like, 
Just read it as if it's about somebody else. You know, right. that, that's like would be He's a helpful not, exercise. You know, sleeping with your daughter. That's right. <laughs> Try to do that if you can. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I, totally. <laughs> Try not to think about that ever. That's right. Yeah. But um, I also had to let go of the idea that she would ever um, be like pleased or notice what I was doing. There is a, a, a people pleasing good boy, mama's boy in me that's like. Oh, she introduced me to Jesus. I think I signed her book. I was like, thank you for introducing me to Christ in the book. <laughs> this is this is that's true. This is dedication. That's real. Can I can I steal that line and sign every one of my books thank now? You thank you for introducing, introducing me, me to Christ. Christ. Yeah. Leah Leibowitz. That's <laughs> hilarious. Lord. I didn't say Jesus. I said yeah. the Christ. Okay. <laughs> but um so yeah, there the was the original that. comedy sex god. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So I let go of that and I was like, none of this is for you. But then they both my dad especially really loved the book. And that I did not see coming. That's ever. great. Although when I started, I, w- I remember thinking like, this'll get his attention. <laughs> so I still have the needy boy that wants his parents to like him. But it, it, ironically and sort of spiritually, to get there I had to let go of the desire for it. And that is, that's the paradox of spirituality is often the things that bring us to God are the things that at, at first seem like they're moving us away from God. And so we talked a lot about Ram Das, who is uh, a Harvard physician who uh, was born Richard Alpert and turned to a, a higher calling, a different sort of mysticism. New Age. Uh, a, just, that's derogatory. Let's not say yeah, New Age. That's a, and became like a real... Eastern uh, mysticism. Mystic guru. Yeah. Yeah. Do you... Is that the next step? In your career, for me to be, are you asking if he's going to be a guru? Holmes and just <laughs> no, because he, he, listening to you and and you're very funny, but then again, so is Ram Dass. Right. Um, no, the book is as good a mystical tract as you'll find. A hundred percent. I really, it really. That. I mean, it's not the the last step in your reading journey if that's going to be your thing. It's yeah. it's an early step, right. but I it's agree. so humane right. and so. Yeah. And look, I come from a long rabbinic line. That we take these things very seriously. Is this? Is this the calling? Are you finally going to be the the pastor? <laughs> well, I will say this. So, I'm. There's good money in it. <laughs> then yes, yeah. <laughs> it's all tax exempt. Like yeah, really. Well, I will. I'm very interested in. So I wrote the book to relieve and to restore, relieve suffering. So people are a lot of their sort of I would say faulty or or bad beliefs, bad religion, can cause people a lot of suffering. And then to restore, to restore some sort of connection to the mystery. We don't even have to use the word God. So I love doing that. I love doing that through my podcast. And we're doing, I'm going to do some touring. And then we're adding early shows, like just like an hour uh, for like VIP tickets or whatever. And we'll call that like a comedy sex God bonus thing. Um, And that I could see potentially that being something where we get together and we talk, we do questions. Drop or acid and meditate. And for, drop acid. Yeah. So I do my set, tripping balls. <laughs> no, well, microdose. <laughs> but I mean. That sounds so pointless, the microdosing. Oh, it's like, wonderful. Is it? Have you microdosed? Oh, I've yeah. never dosed. I mean, it's not among the drugs I've done. I've only dosed. So, <laughs> You've only dosed. You dosed? Oh, yes. Uh, Absolutely. Should I start with the micro or should I just go all in? I go well, all in. I don't know. That's a good question. My first shrooming experience was at the Anne Frank house. No way. Yeah. 
Well, we've wow. talked about this. In my shroom experience, was a and mile away found, at the oh, Van Gogh Museum. Kind of I, I was going to say you found what was hiding in your attic. That's right. But I, I just meant that. You understand that is, the Jewish is, podcasting joke is, world very well. <laughs> it is a little bit dark, and I want to acknowledge that. But I wanted to say, like, there's you know things else in our own. The train cars. Oh, yeah. so dark. Oh, my God. I said off air, I was like, all my friends are Jewish, so I, I get calloused. And I sometimes forget how <laughs> I'm not Jewish, so you shouldn't say Both of things. your rabbis have been, Jesus and Ram Dass. That's yeah. true. That's right. That's Fully true. formed by bearded Jewish men. I know. My, my lineage is it's Jewish. Strong, yeah. They're all Jewish. Krishna Das, the Kirtanwala is Jewish. They're all Jews. Very smart. It's like having a Jewish doctor. You want a, you want a Jewish guru. Yeah, and accountant. Um, that's that's how we got in control of Hollywood. That's I right. knew that. We worked very hard. This shit was not that. accidental, Peter. I knew that every step of the way. Uh, what were we talking about? Acid? No, oh, the, the early show. Are you going to be a guru? And you said for the hour before the main show. Well, I'm always... I, I'll, so I'm doing press all day. Yet here I am talking about this stuff. And what I love about this stuff is it's about attempting to share some now with people. Right. So when I was doing press for crashing and people were like, what's it like working with Artie Lang? It was harder for me to share some now right. with people. So I never, even though some of the things I've said on this podcast, I've said five times today, I don't tire of it. So you could say that that's my bliss to right. quote Joseph Campbell or my passion. And, and I'm very blessed that I found two passions. I have comedy and then I have uh, whatever you want to call this. So, but the thing, a distinction I make in the in the book is that a guru is the way. So Jesus was a was a guru. He he's the embodiment. You know, the, the line between teacher and the teaching is totally removed, and you just are the embodiment of the the Tao or the way or you you are enlightenment itself. So that was uh, Maharaji Ramdas's guru. He wasn't a teacher. He didn't teach, really. He just was it. So people got most of the charge that they got from this man mm -hmm. from just being with him. So that is not what I think is my life. <laughs> but when it comes to being a teacher, one of the things that I think is important is, is like, if you have truth in you, if you're absorbing it, and a lot of what I wrote about in the book, I absorbed from Ramdas or Alan Watts or Richard Rohr or Rob Bell or Michael Gunger. I'm getting these things, and they're building up. They're expanding my consciousness. Nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder and be like, "You can now be a teacher." You know what I mean? Just share it if it's in you and it's coming out of you. That's the fruit on your tree. Yeah, if people want to come and eat it. Here's what Alan Watts says about teaching that I love. He goes, "I'm giving this lecture on Buddhism, but please don't think that I'm like doing it. It's my trip to be like a big fancy guy, and that you will come and eat eat me, and I'll feel bigger from it." He's like, "Just think of me like a, a river or a, a stream going down a mountain." And I'm just doing what I do. And if you'd like to come and drink from the river, you're a deer and you see some water, drink it. If you don't, don't. That is my approach to teaching. It's like, I'm going to keep doing what I do, which is looking for opportunities to talk about it, whether it be before my stand-up shows or after or just on the street. And if you get fed by that, great. You know who else gets fed by it? Me. Hmm. That goes back to the forgetting. I'm always forgetting. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, you, you, you look out your eyes and you're like, this again? And of course it's just blackness. And of course we're, it's despair. And of course God hates me. I need to remember and, and find that quiet place that's in both of you and in everything. And talking about it helps. And so, so we, one more question each, and then we'll let him, because I think and, his time is probably... 
And then um, the door is locked. He's not getting out. <laughs> We're doing this for another seven I've hours. I've never uh, been wanted by the Jews. <laughs> I told I told him. Off, off, you said yeah, that in HBO. Well, that actually gets me to my question, which yeah. is you spent a lot of time around Jews. I mean, yeah. in your career, I mean, comedy, you've lived in New York and L.A., two super Jewy places. Yeah, very Jewy. You grew up in greater Boston, right? And which also is, very Jewy. Which is pretty Jewy. Cambridge. Cambridge is where You grew I up in school. Cambridge? Well, that's where I went to school. Oh, where'd you go? Cambridge Trend School. Came up, and Quakers are all very, ex-Jews. Very Jew. So, do you... I don't even know how to ask this question. Like, what do you think of do us? Do you love us? Like, like when you're talking to your wife, who's also the, the, the daughter of Protestant preacher, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or is the daughter... Yeah. She's a preacher's kid, right? Yeah. And you guys, like, you're, you're having, like, a post, you know, coital or HBO moment in bed. You're snuggling. You're, like, talking... <laughs> Post-traumatic. Post, yeah. yeah. You're talking, like, real... The stuff that's spouse to spouse and, like... You know, not that you're then talking about the Jews, but let's just say you're talking with someone you can trust implicitly. Yeah. Like, doesn't yeah. everyone after sex do you talk I about the Jews? What, I thought that's what the Gentiles did. They, that's they how s- we come down. That's smoke right. a Marlboro, <laughs> talk about the Jews. Have a gin and tonic and talk about the Jews. A gin and tonic. What is? Do you ever wonder why there's so ma- there aren't that many of us, and yet you're in these communities where there's so many of us? Like, do you have any theories or just bemusements or? Well, you you know, a friend of mine, I won't quote him because I don't know if it's public. He thinks his theory, I love this theory, I don't know if it's true, but he's like, it's the Sabbath. He's like, you are the only people that have always taken a day. And he's like, this is why the the lawyers and the doctors and the mm-hmm. mystics and all of this like well-roundedness came from upholding the idea that you need to rest. Right. And I was like, dude, I don't know if you should say that publicly because it's, it's a little weird, but I think that you might be on to something. <laughs> and we've, and we Jews have forgotten it. I mean, too yeah, many of us have. don't take that day and it's actually the most important thing we could remember. And I, I agree. No I, I, I think I, I, I take a loose Sabbath. I try and be off my phone for an, an entire day. I don't day. check email till about 4 p.m. on Saturday. Yeah. I go Friday go. night till I usually around late in the day Saturday. Oh, so you're doing it proper. Like I do about 20 hours. Sabbath. Yeah. Like, you know. Makes such a difference. Such a difference. I mean, Richard Rohr says, like, if we could teach, if we could just teach people how to pray, they'd be fine. Like, forget theology and philosophy. If you could just teach people how to be still, how to be quiet. And the Sabbath is is a huge part of that. There's so many stories of people just being alone. Obviously, Christ and Buddha both went away for 40 days and, like, found it, you know. So silence is such an important thing. So I was also telling you, though, I, I really envy Jewish people. I have Jewish culture envy, the identity envy. And then there, there's this wonderful thing. I remember it changed my life. I was watching a 60 Minutes thing about there was like a, a, a Jewish centerfold. It was like the first Jewish centerfold in Playboy. And they had a rabbi on. And he was like, I think that's beautiful. Like celebrating the female form. And like, and he was like, if a, if a man goes home, a Jewish man goes home and he, and he pleasures himself to a magazine and it's a Jewish woman, hey. He had like the most Jewish <laughs> And were you like, fuck, I had the wrong religion. <laughs> because what? What I envy it's is my brother's Playboy could have come in handy. <laughs> That's, we had, we got two things differently as as Gulliam. One was this is not our home; we're just passing through. Jews mm. never had that. That's no. nowhere in the in the Old Testament. There's no idea of like just this for now, and then later we'll get God. So no, it's very be here now. Mm-hmm. It like, is. This is this is the show. This is the show. This is it's the show. not a waiting room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also the idea of heaven and hell being a different thing. I remember I, I went to Israel and I asked every rabbi I met about hell, and they they sort of seemed confused that that's what I wanted yeah. to talk about. And they were like, I remember one guy was like, 
when you realize that God was real and you wasted your life, that burns. But that, you know, which I don't agree with this, by the way. But he was like, you're not going to be set on fire. It's just sort of a, he didn't use the word metaphor, but he's like, it's the feeling of like, oh, God, what was I doing? And yeah. and this is the juice. And I, and I was over there worrying about that. So you guys got that those two things really, really right. And um, so it's all been favorable. I mean, our Jewish friends, we joke, you know, that they're, they can be as neurotic as I am. That's why I consider myself an honorary Jew. Mm-hmm. And that's why I relate to my Jewish friends. There's a lot of overthinking and, and right. worrying and Jew belly, you know, and, and spicy and food. <laughs> Wait, what's what's Jew belly? Jew belly? Jew belly? That, Dairy? I, I dated a Jewish Dairy? girl and no. she would, whenever she got a stomach ache, it's not right, but I would be like, you have Jew belly? Jew belly? <laughs> and, and she would laugh really, really hard. So It's not record. washboard abs. It's, no. can't, it's, it's dairy problems. <laughs> but I get Jew belly too. I'm yeah. telling you, honorary Jew. Well, we love you and we welcome you. Yes. I, to the fold. Yes, that's the other thing, man, that you get right. So the Sabbath is number one. Number two, cultural identity is huge. I would throw Passover in there. But even bigger than that, and I think one of the reasons why you, you have so many high-functioning, strong, uh, specifically men, too. Women, all women have a coming-of-age thing, which is menstruation. But you guys have bar mitzvahs. Mm. It's so important. Well, Mark literally wrote the book on bar mitzvahs. I wrote a book Did on bar mitzvahs, you? yeah. And I said, Dude, I said they're, pretty, they're, pretty, uh, they're pretty great. You don't know what it's like. I know you don't. To be... That's where my my Jew envy started. I was like, "Here's your laminated card." Something, but something yeah. is commemorating. Even the embarrassing singing, it's the death of your young self. It's through also, humiliation. It's also <laughs> a time when your parents get up and say nice things about you publicly. Like they that's look right. at you and say earnest. Because they things. have to. Because oh, they paid for it. But that's... Don't get me started. You help me out. Okay. I would. I know. Your publicist wants go. you to go. It's we don't fine. want you to go. But finish this. It's yeah. fine. Jewish families. I know. You guys have a different experience than I do because you know the the glo- the gloaming and the overprotection. The mom the sitting on our laps, shit you wouldn't it. understand. But I remember me and my brother and my father were having dinner with our Jewish friends and their father, and at one point the son put his father in a headlock playfully and gave him a noogie, like a loving, uh-huh. like just a little ah, dad. And my dad looked at me and my brother with the most Gentile face you've ever seen, which said, if you ever do that, I'll fucking kill you. (laughs) I will end end you right now. And my dad would never hurt us. He never even hit us or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, there's something going on in the Gentile consciousness with in regards to families and closeness that I've Envied, but I also love my rigid goishness. I do like it can make me uncomfortable. Yeah. The the especially towards the father. The yeah. too much. The Gentile father is like man on man. That's that's I Zeus know. over yeah. there. You yeah. got nicknames and <laughs> and like tossing the hair. No, no, and, no, no, no. You yeah. know what I mean? We my were, kids rate my outfit every morning when see, I come I downstairs. Up, they I look mean, at me and they're like seven. I have I grew up like Jewish you. aspirations uh, you'll, for you, my kids. You'll, like, you'll, that's, they'll be that. I, they I will. So. My they father will. was uh, an alcoholic bank robber, so I'm firmly <laughs> unkempt. Yeah, I don't mean to be too stereotypical. No, there's a lot of the Jews there. that I know have closer relationships with their fathers specifically. My mother and I, I mean, as, as you can read in the book and watch on Crashing, we were, <laughs> we were too close. <laughs> but that's how you make a comedian. Overloving mother and a withholding father. Amen. You want to wrap us out? Uh, Pete Holmes, 
Yeah. Peter, Shlomo, Yehoshua, Cain, Abel, Yishai. What's your middle name? Benedict. No, that won't do. <laughs> yeah. Baruch. 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 Pete, yeah. Peter Baruch. <laughs> the book is Comedy, Sex, God. G-D. G-D, thank you. There should be a dash going a dash through my head. Right that's right. Like there. an arrow. <laughs> the Jewish version will be with the Dude, that's another thing you got right. I'm sorry. <laughs> But the you, hyphenated the God? G dash D, not saying the name of God. Mm-hmm. Fucking A. Can't it's, approach it. It's yeah. all in that. That is like the only teaching. Oh As I write in the book, we're dogs trying to understand the internet. The respect <laughs> should be in the language. Also, Yahweh is breath. Mm-hmm. <sighs> breath. That, it's, it's you. It's the first prayer you say. It's the last prayer you say. It's your breath. And the name, the Jewish name of God, I am. God is I amness. It's right here. Inshallah. This guy's, this guy's 12 years yeah. from rabbinic school. This guy's <laughs> like, this guy's like, at age 50, he gets his ordination. <laughs> it goes very big. Ah. I, I'll do it, man. The book is Comedy Sex G hyphen D. It's people. <laughs> Thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. My pleasure. This is awesome. Lahaim. Absolute pleasure. Lahaim. Mazel tovs. First, let's start with a listener. Hi, J. Crew. This is Rachel in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I want to wish a very special mazel tov to my fellow graduates of the Jewish Communal Leadership Program at the University of Michigan School of Social Work. I love you all and can't wait for the better world we're going to build together. And please forgive me, but I would like to mention that there is still one spot open for the fall 2019 semester. Just Google JCLP UMich. School of Social Work, you'll find us. As I say, you are not obligated to complete the work. Neither are you free to desist from it. Mazel tov, my friends. Alrighty then. Stephanie Butnick, do you have a mazel tov to add to that? I don't have a mazel tov. I just have some sad news I wanted to share. We lost a member of the J Crew last week, Ed Cohen, the father of my friend Ruben Cohen and the father-in-law of my friend Juliana Storch Cohen died last week. Um, He loved the show. He corresponded with me about it. He donated. He was a wonderful person. And we really miss him. And I think the J Crew, his his world and our world is is, is worse off for his loss. And to his family, Amen. I have another sweet family note, not on a sad note, but also also on a touching note. Uh, A mazel tov from Andrea Stagg to her father, Larry Edelman. She writes in, mazel tov to my father's New Jersey Motorcycle Club, the Hillel's Angels, part of the Jewish Motorcyclist Association, for their fundraising in connection with this year's Ride to Remember. His and other groups, all Jews who cruise, set out annually on a ride to a site that relates somehow to Jewish history and Holocaust education. This year's ride benefits the Holocaust Museum and Learning Center in St. Louis. She asks that we go to Ride to Remember. That's with the number two, ride2remember.com. This week's ride is to Mel Gibson's house in Malibu. <laughs> Andrea Never con- forget. Andrea continues, my dad is a longtime member of Hillel's Angels. He always has a stack of yarmulkes in the center console of his car. And although he wants to be called grandfather, my daughter calls him papaya. 
Pizzo to Papaya Edelman and the, the Hillel's, Hillel's Angels. Angels. A big mazel tov. We love you. Also, a mazel tov to our sometime guest and always friend of the show, Danya Schultz and her husband, Andrew, on the birth of Louisa Ebi Schultz. Danya's water broke as she was leading the second Seder. Hence, Louisa is in the world. Welcome, Louisa. We look forward to sending you some swag. And finally, I just want to say goodbye to Peggy Lipton. I never saw her on the Mod Squad, but my parents would always say, oh, yeah, from the Mod Squad. And I would say, what was that? And apparently it was a TV show that was important to my parents in the late 60s. What's a TV show? But Peggy Lipton is also, in addition to being the ex-wife of uh, Quincy Jones, is the mother of the delightful Hollywood Jewess Rashida Jones, who has to say goodbye to her mother this week. So, again, may her memory be for a blessing. Jewess actress, style icon, Peggy Lipton. Liel. I would like to offer a mazel tov to my friend Alex Weiser, who uh, works at the lovely, important YIVO, but is also an incredible composer who has uh, an opera about Herzl coming out. But this month, uh, he dropped a new album called And All the Days Were Purple. It is A, gorgeous, B, in Yiddish. And so let's let's go out on a, on a hopeful Yiddish note. Here is Alex Weiser from And All the Days Were Purple. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Also, subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live. To book us or advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. You can buy Unorthodox gear and wear it around and be our walking billboard, and it's comfortable, and it's cotton, and it's breathable. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in our shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group with thousands of other listeners in the J Crew. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by one Stephen Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Frederick Reeves of KM Isaiah Israel in Chicago. We're coming to Chicago. Frederick Reeves should be there as well. I mean, we don't know if he's coming, but he should come because he's offering rabbinic supervision. For more information, go to bit.ly slash unorthodox Chicago. That's bit.ly slash unorthodox Chicago. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which for the purposes of the Eurovision contest is its own country. Shalom, friends. <laughs>